So welcome to this new series of Microphilosophy, which takes as its theme the title of my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. I'm Julian Pagini. Now, our format is very simple. Each of my guests is going to propose one thing to do or avoid in order to think well as a philosopher or just as an ordinary human being. The two things are not necessarily co-identical, which we'll then all discuss. And if there's time, I'll chip in something too. So let me introduce my guests. First of all, we'll have Claire Chambers, Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, specialising in feminist theory, contemporary liberal theory, theories of social justice, theories of social construction and bioethics. She's the author of Against Marriage, an egalitarian defence of the marriage-free state, Sex, Culture and Justice, The Limits of Choice, and most recently, Intact, A Defence of the Unmodified Body. One of those true, what they call crossover books, which combines academic rigour accessibility and genuinely wide interest. It was one of my picks of the year for 2022. Hello, thank you for the introduction. Lucy O'Brien. Now, Lucy um, has been marking my homework for a very long time. She was my PhD supervisor. And more recently, she was the chair of the Royal Institute of Philosophy when I was the academic director there. So I'm used to her being my superior in at least three ways, I think. She works in the philosophy of mind and action, currently working interpersonal rather than personal self-consciousness and the nature of self-conscious emotions. And she's the author of Self-Knowing Agents. She's been a stalwart servant of her profession. She served as honorary director of the Aristotelian Society, is co-editor of the leading journal Mind, as I've already said, is chair of the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Welcome, Lucy. Lovely to see you again, Julian. You can mark my homework this time. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll wait to the end. We'll give you marks at the end. Claire, what is it that you've got to put on the table as something we should think about if you want to be thinking better? So my principle is the principle that in philosophy or whenever we want to think better, uh, we must always think about the strongest objections to our own position and how we could counter that. Okay. That's a very straightforward statement. That's often called the principle of charity. So can you give an example perhaps of, of it in action, either in philosophy or perhaps in political discourse, whatever it might be? Well, yes, I can think um, about various ways in which I use this in my own work. So you were kind enough to mention um, intact, and I talk about that principle in the introduction of intact. And I say that the motivation for that book was that I had this sort of intuition that there was something virtuous, something good about leaving our bodies alone, being happy with them as they are. And though, so when my philosophical brain gets working, I think about this intuition and I think, but there's so many reasons why that is a problematic principle. This principle that compels me at the intuitive level just has so many objections. So objections like the fact that we can never leave our bodies alone because we're always working on them all the time. Um, objections that point out all the ways in which working on our bodies are virtuous because we want to do things like, you know, keep fit and clean our teeth and wash our hands and make sure we look as good as we can look and so on. So in my own thinking philosophically, I think challenging myself is always for me the thing that motivates um, any kind of interesting philosophical problem where you have, an, have a view and yet you can also see the really strong objections to that view. I mean, you mentioned in political discourse, you know, I suppose I wonder whether politicians don't do this and ought to do this. I mean, if we think about some of the big issues of political debate, thinking about things like, say, say Brexit, let's say, you know, it would have been really wonderful if when we were having that debate about whether to leave or remain in the referendum, if politicians on both sides had really taken seriously the strongest points made by their opponents and debated those in good faith, rather than demonising the opposing view as being you know, mere deception or prejudice or, you know, project fear or whatever it would have been. 
I mean, okay, so this makes it sound like if you adopt this principle, you're going to be more civil, you're going to be more polite. But why is it intellectually productive to do this rather than just, you know, say nice and civil? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's intellectually productive because by and large, people who disagree with us are themselves thinking carefully and have reasons for those beliefs, which we ought to listen to, we ought to pay attention to. So unless you take an incredibly sort of arrogant point of view, which says that everything I think is right and everybody else is, is stupid, which is you know very rarely the case, other people will actually have access to important truths or insights or at the very least considerations that we ought to, to think about. So only really if you have considered other people's perspectives um, or possible objections with care, can you be sure that your own position is the stronger? So I think from the point of view of intellectual improvement and endeavor, if you really are sure that you've considered the strongest possible objections to your own view, and if you're able to answer and respond to and perhaps rebut those objections, then your own position will be the stronger. So it's partly out of a sort of faith that other people have insights that you ought to to learn from, but also it's out of a sort of selfish pursuit that if you can then create objections to those strongest objections to you, then your position is stronger and you're on stronger footing. I mean, when you explain the principle in that way, it sounds uh, unobjectionable. It sounds like everyone should agree with it. And I think in theory, it's hard to find someone who doesn't agree with it. But I wonder if it's honoured more in the breach than the observance. In professional philosophy, I I mean, Lucy, I remember when when I was your PhD student at UCL, we had these graduate seminars and so forth. And it seemed to me that the objective in a lot of those seminars was to uh, destroy your opponent as effectively as possible, rather than to um, consider their arguments in the greatest light. Obviously, not everyone was behaving in the same way in those seminars, but that was kind of seen to be the dominant culture. Am I being unfair? Or do you think philosophers have, uh, certainly in our culture today, don't apply this principle enough? So I I think that practice of the seminar room is a sort of reflection of Claire's principle. So the idea is once you sit down and you present a piece of work, sort of the rules of the game now are that you lay yourself open to the strongest objections to it, you know, even to the extent that you've right, done nothing valuable or whatever in the talk. So I actually don't think that's inconsistent with, so as, as long as you think you make it a difference between, as it were, who's the proposer and who's the objector, then I think Claire's principle stands. So I think as an advice to somebody, to yourself, to think about your opponent's strongest position, that's sometimes good advice. It can be really, really helpful for working out actually what you think about a view. Because very often you go out with something that's, that's, as it were, a sketch of a view and you don't really know how the details work out. So one of the ways in which you sort of improve your view is to listen to the objections because you can then narrow down what certain aspects of your view that weren't determinate. But sometimes I think that what's at issue is not some proposition that's true or false that you need to to put forward arguments for and consider arguments against. Sometimes what you're doing is trying to articulate, as it were, a way things might be. And that's hard enough, right? (laughs) The way things might be is a sort of starting description of how it is that some phenomena might be operating. 
And sometimes I think philosophers need a little bit of space to articulate those pictures before there, as it were, contested propositions that were then going to fight over whether they're true or false. So sometimes David Valman's got this in, in, in the preface of a book. He says something like, I want to describe an account of how things might be and, and to some extent leave for now whether they're actually like that or not. I, I, I take your point that, you know, by opening up yourself to the strongest uh, ob- objections, you're kind of applying the principle to yourself. But there's still an issue of like, how constructive that process is. I mean, look, let me give a couple, a couple of examples, actually. One, one from my own experience, one I've just read about. Um, when I was an undergraduate, John Cottingham was uh, one of the uh, lecturers at Reading University. And I remember being in a, in a lecture and someone asked what even to me, who you know, at that stage knew very little, thought was an idiot question, you know, so eyes rolling. And I was really taken by how he, he stopped and he thought and what he did was he answered a better question than the questioner answered. And I spoke to him afterwards about this. And he says this is a kind of principle he adopts. So, you know, people are often, as you say, they're struggling perhaps to articulate what it is they're getting at. They don't necessarily get it right. So rather than just go in and take apart the version they, they're giving you, you kind of have this obligation to think, well, what, what might a better version of that mean? Better than even the person themselves mean? And that, and that seems to me a very constructive thing to do. And I think sometimes the the culture of, well, my job is to present my view and your job is to test it as hard as possible, doesn't always invite the the critic or the interlocutor to actually help you to that stronger position. It helps you to show you what's wrong with the one you've got, uh, but it doesn't necessarily help you build the other one. Do you see what I mean? I do. That's a great example. It reminds me of a, a similar occasion. I saw Cass Sunstein do the same thing. So a student asked a question and he answered that question. He said, yes, I can answer that objection quite easily. Here's the answer. But if you slightly change it so that your objection is is, is this, now, now I'm really stuck. And now it's really difficult. Now let me think what I can do about that. And I was so struck by that act of intellectual generosity and also, you know, a serious attempt to work together on a problem, actually. Another way that one of my former colleagues, the wonderful Jane Heal, puts this is she says, in philosophy, it shouldn't be you against me. It should be you and me against the problem. Mm. In that respect, I like the way that Lucy brought in the idea that the seminar room, if you have a very adversarial sort of environment, can be that can be an acceptable use of this principle if we know we're playing the rules of a particular kind of game. And I think that's right. I think it used to be more common than it is now in my experience for for the seminar room to be a very very adversarial combative occasion but everybody knew it was going to be like that and so there was the sense that although it might be sort of grueling intellectually it wouldn't be wounding psychologically because you would go into this seminar fully expecting that every point made would be an objection and then at the end of the seminar everyone says wonderful paper really enjoyed that let's go and have have a drink or go to the restaurant or whatever it might be and so you had that sense of a of a context I think sometimes now we almost get the opposite where there's a sense that the seminar room shouldn't be competitive and we should all say how much we've enjoyed a paper but then afterwards you know <laughs> in private or on social media people are criticizing each other and, and I personally preferred the environment where you know you go into the seminar room we know we're going to put the strongest possible objections 
But that fact is not going to in any way indicate a lack of respect or a lack of appreciation for the work that has been done by the original uh, philosopher. I don't want to come off as defending the kind of culture of debate that you were finding problem with. So I really do think we put the strongest objections. But I also think, and I think part of Claire's thought was that you seek out the strongest objections. You strengthen your opponent rather than weaken them, right? You make the move that says, okay, well, put like that, I think I know what to do with it, but just this twiddle and I'm stuck. So I think if it really is you and me against the problem and then there's room for kind of robust debate in the seminar room and we don't just have to sort of praise each other's marvelousness. But I think that doesn't mean that that we shouldn't attend to kind of cultures of productive discourse. So in a way, I think, is that Claire's principle can get confused with another kind of principle, which is that philosophical discussion, you know, is a battle between persons. <laughs> that you can employ various tools, you know, you don't have to just give strong arguments, you can sneer, you can dismiss, you can, you know, and, and put in that, if it's like that, then we don't, I agree, we don't want to do philosophy like that, Julian, and, yeah. and I'm, no names, no patrol, but it's not that I'm thinking that everything was rosy back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I find interesting as well about this principle is that yeah, as I say, everyone, I think, thinks we ought to uh, adopt it, but our ability to adopt it seems to be highly selective. So, for example, I was just reading uh, the new biography, excellent biography of, of Dick Parfit by David Edmonds, and I, I came across this passage where in seminars, apparently, Parfit was just like I described Cottingham being. He would, you know, people would ask questions, and it's like there was no such thing as a stupid question to him. He would always, like, seek out what was interesting in the question and answer it. I thought that was wonderful. On the other hand, there's almost like a running joke which is he simply couldn't understand at all why Bernard Williams <laughs> had the view he did about reasons not being mo- moral reasons not being motivating. And he just he couldn't get it. And I thought that's really strange because it's like surely there's an interpretation of Williams's view. The listeners don't have to know what the view is, but you know, there's an interpretation of his view which would make it sound crazy. And who could possibly believe that? It seems to me there are ways of interpreting that view that make it totally understandable, even if you don't agree with it. And it was like Parfit just couldn't understand, and he and he would badger people all the time. Why does why can't Williams believe this? So it seems his ability to give the best version of his opponent's argument was something that worked most of the time, and it had these weird blind spots where he just couldn't get it. Is is that a familiar kind of phenomenon to either of you? I think that definitely can be, particularly where debates are incredibly polarized or become incredibly um sort of sort of toxic one obvious example i think at the moment is thinking about debates around gender identity trans rights and trans identity and so on where there is a sort of atmosphere of of no debate that some people will say that and there's a sense that people on either sort of side of the debate will think of the opponents as being beyond the pale in one way or another and i think that is a great error, not only, as you said earlier, Julian, in terms of, you know, civility and sort of being nice to each other, but in terms of actually trying to understand difficult issues. And in fact, the more it seems that our opponents are beyond the pale, the more it seems to me absolutely essential to try to properly understand why they might be saying the things that seem so beyond the pale, because if they are 
from our point of view, so utterly indefensible, then it seems that we must be missing something, I think. Mm. Now, that's not to say that there can be no views which are beyond the pale, but you really ought to do your hardest to make sure you're not missing something, I think, before dismissing an opponent in that way. Because otherwise, you just do risk missing what's important. And I think almost everything we talk about in philosophy and also in politics, you know, is complex, is nuanced. And we can all, almost always, I think, learn something from our opponents, even if we end up rejecting their view, you know, in a really robust way. Yes, understanding isn't justifying. I mean, I think, I think, for example, of um, Russia and Ukraine, um, there's a, a way of like looking at that in which you just simply portray Russia as a as a as a fascist aggressor with, without any kind of reason at all, other than Putin's a bastard. There's another way of looking at it, which tries to understand some of the reasons around Russia's sense of threat, inferiority, etc., which make it more understandable it doesn't go anywhere near justifying it don't get me wrong but you're understanding where it's coming from in a more better and that's got to be helpful and i think sometimes i think people worry that you know if you go too far in understanding a position you disagree with you're going to end up somehow justifying it and that doesn't follow i think um lucy so i think i mean i think it's an interesting example the perfect williams example so you know as philosophers we have we have certain kinds of goals. I mean, some of them are just, I'm going to explore in this area or, you know, I'm going to poke around and think about this concept and see sort of how it hangs together and try to make sense of something. But sometimes we have goals that are stronger than that. And I, I take it that one of Parfit's central goals was, and, and he, and because he was quite sort of extreme in his commitments, it was like his philosophical life wouldn't be worth living <laughs> if we couldn't defend moral objectivism, if we couldn't make sense of there being really good actions and really bad actions and so on. And I take it that the debate about reasons in a way was a debate that he thought if you settle that one way then then his project was a misconceived project so I always think I'm changing topic and then I realize I'm just working on self-consciousness again (laughs) right but if somebody says to me there's just no such thing as being self-conscious I don't understand what you mean it's just a and and I had you know I have dealt with certain kinds of skepticism about that there's mere reflexive reference there's no consciousness involved or something like that and I do take it on but you know we do have starting points and we do have sort of basic motivations I think sometimes for our views and the sort of the more a challenge is going to take that that were the motive we have for doing the thing that we're doing away from us, the less we're likely to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to sit for two weeks and really think about the possibility that you're right. So it's one one way I would put that, Lucy, I think you're just absolutely right, is we always have to start from somewhere. Our arguments have to have some premises and we will sometimes simply have to assume some premises so again thinking about my my area of political philosophy for example you know in many parts of debating about social justice you know the people engaged in the interlocution will assume a commitment to equality and freedom let's say and they won't try to start justifying from those first principles upwards so I think it's absolutely right that we can pitch our debate at a certain level where some things are assumed and some things are up for grabs. We don't have to constantly start every um, thinking about objections to every possible stage at every possible moment of philosophy. That would be impossible. 
Yeah. And I guess that one just think applying that principle of charity could be a test of something else. So if you apply it and you really can't see at all uh, where the other person is coming from, I suppose that tells you something about how fundamental um, bedrock that commitment is to you. You can't even begin to imagine uh, how it could be false, even even though someone smart and intelligent is arguing for that. Look, we, as usual, we could go on and make the whole program about that, but I, I'd like to switch over to perhaps um, Lucy's proposition for something we should be thinking about to help us with our thinking. So I'm not sure I thought of this as a principle or a rule, but it was just a sort of observation on how I think philosophers can make philosophical progress. It's very easy as a philosopher. And this used to trip me up as a younger philosopher. I remember being in a seminar. It was the 15th seminar that we'd had on internalism or externalism about mental content. That was the sort of debate of the day. And I was kind of thinking about the arguments. And then the one philosopher said to me, oh, Lucy doesn't have a view on this. Lucy has, you know, she can't make up her mind. (laughs) And I remember thinking, well, that's true. (laughs) But... But then, and it sort of bugged me, it puzzled me. And and for a long time, I kind of thought, oh, I'm just, you know, easily led. One minute, one view seems right. And then the next minute, the other view seems right. But I did determinedly, like, not make up my mind. And then I think partly that debate just fell away. But I think one of the reasons that it fell away is that it became sort of clearer and clearer that, you know, the discussion is about whether mental content is in the head. The basic tools by which we were setting up seemingly obvious contradictory propositions weren't actually contradictory. There were ways of reading them whereby some of the things the internalist wanted to say was right and some of the things the externalist wanted to say was right and that the puzzle, as it had been set up, was based on a sort of slightly misconstrued. I've had that experience quite often in philosophy that if you just sit long enough and allow yourself not to know and to be swayed both ways, something about the framework with which you're tackling the problem can come to the surface and delightfully you can realize you don't have to choose (laughs) this might be just like that i like everybody to be equally right or or equally wrong or something (laughs) but i think philosophical puzzles do become tractable once we get a clearer idea of what concepts are doing what work and see that they might be slightly ambiguous in ways that we hadn't noticed or commit ourselves to, to things that we weren't clear about. In a way that I think you've got given us two kind of principles for the price of one there. Because <laughs> one is is a general kind of view, you might say, that where you do have a debate and there are two sides and really smart people are advancing them, then the chances are there's at least a decent grain of truth on both sides. And therefore, it's not a question of simply looking to see who's right. You're not saying, or sometimes it is the case that just one side is right, but often it's trying to see how both sides could be getting at something important in ways which allow both things to be true. But the second, the second thing, which is even if it is the case that one person's wrong, one person's right, still 
we shouldn't be in a hurry to come to a conclusion about it, right? That we need to give things time. And, and that's, I think, outside of philosophy in, in public life and political life, the, the, the rush to a conclusion seems to me a critical thinking disaster almost invariably, except in those occasions where circumstances dictate that you have to decide something quickly for a practical purpose. Claire, what were you thinking in response to Lucy's thoughts there? Well, I think it's perhaps important to distinguish taking our time to work out which is right, which seems sometimes clearly necessary with the way that Lucy put it where you know sometimes perhaps we don't have to choose either way sort of almost ever and I suppose my provocative objection there would be well if we don't have to choose ever does that mean that this is an issue which doesn't really matter (laughs) nothing really follows from it and is it is it merely a sort of parlor game in that situation I take it that's not what you meant Lucy (laughs) Uh, I didn't I didn't mean that. I mean, I think there are very different kinds of philosophical problem. And I mean, we could go back to Julian's uh, question that I think there are very different ways of thinking philosophically and that there are very different kinds of philosophical puzzle. I think some philosophical puzzles are, if you like, philosophers' puzzles. The ways in which we've tried to make sense of phenomena and we've introduced philosophical theory or philosophical modeling, and then we're trying to decide who's right or wrong. And often, with respect to them, it turns out that the modeling's gone wrong, the philosophical theorizing's gone wrong. So I think, I mean, my bugbear is that I think I think there's a certain kind of mind-body dualism that underlies many, many of our philosophical puzzles. You know, whether it's kind of puzzles in the philosophy of law or puzzles in the philosophy of mind or puzzles in ethics or indeed the debate about internal external. But so I think there are philosophers' ways of viewing things that get kind of built into philosophers' puzzles. And then there really is task to to kind of go back and see what happens if we reposition it. And those puzzles, so so the way you put it is we almost never need to decide who's right or wrong. Well, yeah, because the debate was misconceived. We need to refigure it and then decide who's right or wrong when the things that drove us in the first place to answer the question are back on the table in a in a reset way. And at that point, it might be perfectly obvious what's right or perfectly obvious what's wrong. Um, and then there are other philosophical problems that I think, you know, we sort of really need to settle and there's no, there's no dissolution, as it were. But they aren't, they won't tend to be philosophers' problems. I think they'll be tend to be problems, we human problems that we all have to tackle and that philosophers might help with. Well, so in one sense, that, that distinction between philosophers' problems and, and as well, other people's problems, you know, recalls for me the thought that philosophy is never over and could never be over, right? We, we're never going to have finished um, with philosophy because we can always ask more questions and we can always make more distinctions and look deeper and, and so on. So perhaps that is those two principles, the one that the idea that philosophy is never finished and your idea that sometimes we just sit with things are, are complementary. Perhaps that's what's going on. Yes, I think that's right. There's a sort of a, well, a hint of suggestion in what you're talking about, Claire, and also the philosopher's problems, that some people may think, well, look, there are these philosopher's problems which simply don't matter to anyone other than philosophers, and, and that this is obviously a, a bad thing, that things have got to have some practical upshot. 
But there's also, I don't know whether you were um, endorsing this at all, Lucy, but one reason sometimes people give for persisting with issues where uh, things don't seem easy, don't don't seem straightforward, and maybe where we don't even know what the practical upshot is, that you can never entirely anticipate what the consequences are going to be. So, uh, yeah, a philosophical debate could seem to be going nowhere, and you may not even be sure how useful it is. It may turn out that some kind of distinctional point is reached at the end, which is significant. It may even be a practical significance, but it may be just intellectual significance. So is there also a reason for sort of patience in sort of not, not trying to kind of um, uh, hurry to even dis- decide whether it matters or not? There's, there's a certain value in just sort of like persisting with a, a line of thought and problem, even if you don't know in the end whether it's going to turn out to be uh, an important or trivial conclusion. So I think that's uh, when my daughter went off at seven o'clock this morning to work and I said, oh, I've got to think about how to think like a philosopher. And she said, well, I suppose the question is, should one think like a philosopher? (laughs) Thereby thinking like a philosopher, right? Taking the question and immediately. (laughs) But um, and one of the things that I'd be really sort of anxious about is the thought that the answer to the question about whether one should think like a philosopher or think philosophically about things turns on whether or not there's going to be a practical upshot, you know, predictable in the immediate future, that we're not going to be able to solve this problem unless we think philosophically about it. Because apart from anything else, I I mean, I think it can be extremely helpful. And I do think that there are skills, thinking skills philosophers use that can be extremely helpful in thinking about sort of practical problems that we might be facing or making decisions, you know, under crisis or whatever. But we've got to be honest that it's not always going to be very helpful having a philosopher in the ways in which we step back from problems, the ways in which we we slow things down, we ask for, it's not always going to be the right approach. If, you know, if we're wanting to be maximally efficient, we need different kinds of thinking. And thinking this way is not always going to be the right way. I think it's an inevitable way because we're human beings and we're reflective human beings. And I think philosophical thinking comes out of so well, the nature of human cognition. But I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want the test of the value of philosophical thinking to be whether it's useful in solving a practical problem for us. I mean, that question of the connection between philosophy and practical problems obviously comes up again, particularly in in political philosophy. And there you might even think that sometimes the philosophy should even be subordinate to the practical implications. I mean, I'm thinking here of Robert Nozick's classic book, Anarchy, State and Utopia, which argues for um, a very sort of strict libertarianism with a very minimal state where there is no redistributive taxation. He argues against all redistributive taxation as being akin to to slavery of those who are taxed. And it's a book that is taught, I think, standardly in, in political philosophy classrooms because it is such wonderful philosophy. It's such so beautifully argued. It's sort of compelling. The examples and thought experiments are sort of classics in the field. And as an example of philosophical reasoning, it's just impeccable. And so a very common response to reading this book is to, you know, be 
caught and caught up in the flow of the philosophical argument and to be agreeing at every stage. Yes, that follows. Yes, that follows. Yes, that follows. And then you're hit with the conclusion that we can effectively just leave poor people to starve because it would be the worst thing ever to tax the rich. Um, and, you know, you think, oh, my goodness me, what, I just agreed to that all along this journey. And here I am at this destination, which seems utterly appalling. What, what now? And that's a very, very sort of pleasurable experience intellectually to go back and unpick where you've gone wrong, where Nozick's gone wrong, what's, what's happening in that debate. But you might think if what you're trying to do is do politics and actually implement the results of philosophy, you know, that's a very dangerous book because it can lead you down, down a path that seems to, I think, to most people not to be utopian, but to be dystopian. So I think that's very interesting, isn't it? What, what are philosophers doing when it's not supposed to be applied in, in, as it were, quotes, the real world or in politics? And what are philosophers doing when we do use philosophical tools on political issues, which might have actually quite serious implications if we if we put them into practice? I completely agree. I think that example is a really good one. And the one that's that's sort of emerging, a new one emerging now is, I think, the effective altruism debate. You know, you've got these kind of crystalline forms of thinking. Each step seems to follow from another step. And then it ends up being that this world might be a sort of more moral world if we have, you know, many fewer humans and lots and lots of highly developed sentient cyborgs. And you kind of think, whoa. So I think it's really interesting what as philosophers we do about that. And I think those kind of cases are not just philosophically troubling, but I think they are politically troubling because philosophical ideas are seductive and the logic of them can be extremely powerful. And you can, you know, end up with half your cabinet, you know, having studied Nozick in PPE tutorials, right? So it's not that it's it not st- that it doesn't kind of affect how we put our world together. Philosophical ideas are really the sort of political foundations of many, many nations. So so I think I offered you a second principle, Julian, which was the be bold enough to insist on the relevance of our plain sense of things. <laughs> right. So when you get to the thought, but isn't it awful that someone should just die on the road, you should be able to insist on that and go back and work out where you went wrong. I mean, so in the book, I think I, I say, you know, people's philosophers will say, follow the argument wherever it leads. And I'd say, but not if it takes you off the edge of a cliff, right? Yeah, and, 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 and you know a cliff when you see one, as it were. So, <laughs> well, listen, let, let me put something on the table myself then, just to finish up, see what you make of this. And I think it does relate to what both of what you've been saying. So one thing that interests me about thinking well is that, you know, typically critical thinking texts will we'll talk about techniques and methods and validity of arguments and soundness. And I've got increasingly interested in, you know, virtues of thinking, as it were, the kind of attitudes we bring to our thinking and how important they are. And you know, Bernard Williams talked about this in his last book, Truth and Truthfulness. And he, he used the phrase, you know, virtues of truth. And one of the ones he had was what he called sincerity. The way I understand this is that actually, if you if you really want to, to think well, you've got to start with that fundamental attitude of sincerity. You've got to genuinely want to 
arrive at the right conclusion. You've got to genuinely want to understand the other person. And this might sound easy, but it's not, because there are all sorts of things that stand in, in the way of that. So, for example, yeah, the, the principle of charity is, is, is in a way, a, a, a manifestation of, of sincerity. You're trying to genuinely try and understand the person as best as possible. But, you know, if you're highly attached to a view, it's hard to be entirely sincere because it's very hard to address objections to it, which seem to be genuinely strong. So, you know, sincerity isn't something that comes easily. It's not, again, it's not, it sounds like a nice sort of like almost matter of etiquette, but it, but it really isn't. So, you know, I think it's really important. And, I, and again, I just wonder what both of you think of that and how much sincerity you see in, in intellectual life, in public life and in, in philosophical life. Well, I do think you're right that the principle of sincerity has connections to my principle of, of charity, right? Because one of the things that ought to motivate that principle of charity is recognizing that if I myself am, am sincere, so too is my opponent, that their objection is sincere and is coming from a place of, of intellectual commitment itself. So I think recognizing the sincerity of others is what helps us to think about their objections. So I don't think one has to be insincere in coming up with objections to one's own argument. One has to just recognize that there are objections from those who are themselves committed to that view. I mean, sometimes you find this question of sincerity coming up in areas of, of philosophy, which is often raised particularly as an objection to ideas of certain kinds of democratic thinking. So some theorists John Rawls think that we ought to be engaging in the democratic sphere using what he calls public reason, where we only put forward reasons that other people could, in theory or in principle, agree with. And we shouldn't put forward reasons that come from our own deep-seated controversial commitments, such as our religious commitments or something like that, which others don't agree with. And the objection to Rawls on that is that that requires us to be insincere, you know, not to properly express our own views. And I think you can see from that debate that the role of sincerity does again depend on context. Mm. So the reason Rawls wants us to be, let's say, insincere in that context and to put forward only certain kinds of reasons is because he thinks the context of democratic debate is a context in which we are thinking about coercively using the role of the state to enforce laws and rules on other people who disagree with us. And so we have to constrain the justifications for that kind of use of coercion. But when we're engaged in a in a, bait, a debate of a different kind, sincerity seems to be perfectly appropriate. And we don't want to be engaging in debate with people who are just deliberately being provocative or or rude or putting forward ideas that they don't actually hold just to get a to get a rise out of us. I, I find the accusation of the, the, the public reason view um, requires insincerity. I, I'm not sure I entirely buy that because it would require insincerity if you said, look, you've got to like pretend you don't have the views you have. You've got to pretend you don't have religious faith. And you've got to articulate arguments that you don't necessarily agree with, but the ones that I think that would work. Well, that, that would be insincere. But I don't think the public reason demand does say that. Sometimes it's, it's inappropriately applied. I don't think any reason at all why people shouldn't make open what their religious faith is, et cetera, et cetera. But they're recognising that in public life, those are not the reasons that count. But they have to put forward the reasons that can command the right of support. But again, sincerely held ones, right? Not not just instrumental ones. I mean, you, you put that as a thing that people often say, but do you think it's right to say that it requires a form of insincerity? I think it depends on your religious views. So if your religious views have a political dimension or a theocratic dimension, you know, and you really 
think that the best just state is the state that involves, you know, religious law operating or something, then it's not obvious it straightforwardly requires insincerity, but it requires, as it were, the recognition that you're prepared to sacrifice your idea of the state you think ought to exist for the possibility of a coordination between your fellow creatures. So I think, uh, you know, put as a kind of compromise position. But of course, if you're a liberal, you think that isn't a compromise position. That's the most just state. So I think it's complicated, but I can see where the argument comes from. Yeah, but see, I'm not even sure that insincerity is required there in, in the sense that I think people, again, should be honest. So let's say you, you favour a theocratic state and you're living in a liberal democracy, right? You should say so. You should say, look, I'm sorry, I, 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 I think we should live in a theocratic state, right? The, the point is that in a, in a democratic uh, polis, then those aren't reasons that other people have any obligation to take seriously. But I, I think the idea that someone should disguise the fact that they hold those commitments isn't what should be going on you know people should be open if they have them they should recognize that if those are the reasons other people have no obligation to accept them that would be my take on it but maybe i'm i'm not the political philosopher claire what what do you make of this well i suppose the question of sincerity is about what are as it were are your real reasons so let's think about debates about reproductive rights and abortion for example where many people who are opposed to abortion, say particularly in the US context, where this is a very live political debate, would be opposed for religious reasons. They would believe that that the sanctity of life is given by God and that the Bible teaches that abortion is is wrong and so on. Now, it's also possible to find other reasons against abortion that don't mention God. So that commitment could be put in ways that are secular. So, you know, we all believe it's wrong to commit murder. Murder is intentionally killing human beings. A fetus is a human being, so abortion is murder. You know, we can put that in a secular way. And I suppose the question is not whether that uh, that argument could have any weight, but if people putting forward that argument are themselves actually not motivated by it and are motivated by something different, which is a, a religious understanding or something about the teachings of, of the Bible or or similar, then there's a sense in which our debate in the political sphere will be somewhat dishonest because we can debate ideas that are not put forward in the way that the people who put them forward actually hold them and understand them. So that's, I think, the worry. You know, if we're engaging in democratic debate and discourse, we really ought to be engaging with each other as fellow citizens on kind of honest and open terms. Um, And so the fact that we can come up with arguments which defend our position that don't rely on, let's say, religion, doesn't really seem to capture what's at stake. But I I agree with you, Julian, that there's room for us to... You know, we're sophisticated enough beings that we can make a distinction between different forms of discourse. We can say, this is what I really believe about this, but I realize us complicated human beings in our variety need to have a way of talking about this so we can meet a joint decision. So I'll set, you know, my reasons for that aside you know, as you might in a household decide, okay, I'm not going to talk about, you know, how we arrange the sitting room. I'm I, I'm, not, I'm going to leave aside my hatred of certain colours, right? Because it's not going to help us solve this problem about how to arrange the furniture. Not an obviously good example, but I agree with you. We're capable of being sincere, but setting us that you know, sort of honestly uh, aside without deceit. Yeah. I mean, one example that really comes to mind that I mentioned earlier is 
is Brexit, right? Where it does seem deeply unsettling when, you know, we learned it was reported that Boris Johnson had written two um, newspaper articles, one pro-Brexit and one anti-Brexit, and he was just sort of deciding which one to use based on what seemed to be political expediency rather than any kind of deep commitment. And so that lack of sincerity in the political sphere does seem concerning because the fact that one can put arguments for both sides of a position doesn't mean that ultimately we want to know what seems to particularly political leaders and so on to be actually the most compelling arguments and we don't want that kind of debate to be distorted by other considerations than than the power of of the argument itself okay so lucy i just wanted to come back because your question wasn't about sincerity so much in the political sphere but sincerity in as a sort of virtue of philosophical thinking and I think that's an interesting question, you know, because philosophers do quite often say, you know, I don't believe this, but I want to set off, you know, if we made the assumption that I think is false, what would follow from it? And and I think that's a perfectly acceptable move to make. I mean, I, I do find myself wanting that to be you know, when somebody starts like that, I think, well, I hope you're going to use it, <laughs> that bit of working out. You're going to use it in order to try to, to to think about something you do believe or that you do want to sort of work out the, the truth of. Uh, I hope it's a step on the way somewhere. But But I think we actually do, insofar as we're interested in the relations between ideas and keeping track of them and so on, it's part of philosophical thinking that you can start with, here's an assumption I think is false, what follows from it. But again, that's not obviously insincere. I agree with Lucy that it's disquieting to think that there can be a form of philosophy which just doesn't take that at all. I mean, I'm, what someone once said to me, the best way to get a reputation, you know, a good reputation in philosophy is to publish something utterly preposterous, because then everybody will have to cite you to say, well, you know, what's wrong with that view, you'll be the proponent of that view. And, and the citation counts don't measure whether they're, you know, whether they're positive or negative citations. And that I think that kind of, I mean, this, this person who said this was, was joking, obviously wasn't recommending it. But that idea that we should just publish a preposterous view that we know is preposterous, I think, yeah, that would not be the right way to go about philosophy. I take both your points. So I think there's a way of like um, you know, thinking about and articulating a position you don't necessarily agree with, which again isn't necessarily insincere. So I remember Steve Fuller, the sociologist, he was totally against this sort of what he thought this cult of authenticity that we should be setting out what we personally believe because he thought that what we personally believe doesn't really matter. What matters is what is right. And sometimes the most important thing is to try and articulate a position which isn't being heard, irrespective of whether you agree with it or not. But it seems to me that in a way, although that in one sense um, requires you to try and construct arguments that you don't necessarily agree with, and that may seem to be insincere, it is all in the service of the sincere pursuit of trying to get the overall picture. So, I mean, the, the sincerity is it, it much more complicated than I thought it was when we started out, because you know, uh, it can be sincerity at one level and insincerity at another, if you like. But there's some sort of ultimate sincerity. The, 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 if, if you're not doing your thinking, ultimately the goal to try to kind of work things out and understand people, then I think surely that's disastrous. I think, Lucy, you want to say another thing? Well, I wanted to say another two things. One in response to this is that that I think there's something just actually philosophically incoherent about thinking 
well, uh, you know, I'm going to set aside my authentic takes on what's true. I just want to know what's true. (laughs) If I'm the investigator, then those amount to the same project. Determining what I think is true and determining what is true amount to the same project. And if the project of determining what's true clashes with what I earlier believed, then then I give up my belief. You know, I, f- I found out now it's not true and I will no longer believe it. But I also wanted to say something about the relation between sincerity and charity. And I'm thinking of charity here as you know, we we not only talk to each other, and charity can be understood as a kind of uh, a virtue of etiquette, if you like. But when we're dealing with texts, say, I think there is interesting uh, room for tensions between sincerity and charity. So, a colleague of mine, Tom Stern, who writes about writing about Nietzsche, and you know, one of the things he points is the way in which people just like leave out the anti-Semitic bits. <laughs> you know, they're doing a charitable recon, they're trying to make sense of Nietzsche's philosophical views of whatever it is, morality. But they, you know, cut out quotations and, well, he's, he's various kind of anti-Semitic tropes that run, get get excluded. Now, that's an interesting thing. That's sort of charitable philosophical interpretation. But there's also a lack of sort of sincere account of how the text strikes you. And I do think as as philosophers, sometimes I'm a bit with Williams that we should tilt towards sincerity, or at least, you know, our plain sense of a text honestly reported or our plain sense of a view honestly reported and perhaps a little away from charitable reconstructions. Really interesting point. Claire, last last point. Well, just, just on that, perhaps it depends what we're trying to do. If what we're trying to do is to understand Nietzsche, then absolutely right, we shouldn't be excising parts of his text. If what we're trying to do is get to the truth, then it might be worth asking ourselves, can this theory hold up if we do excise, let's say, the anti-Semitism or the, often the misogyny or the racism generally? And is there anything left to be salvaged? And that's a different project from saying, what does Nietzsche think about X, Y, Z? Yeah, right. A fair point. It's, it breaks the Hume debate, doesn't it, as well? So if you're interested to find in what did Hume actually think, there's no point in ignoring the fact he had this racist footnote. But if you're asking what is the best possible use we could make of the Humean approach to philosophy today, it's very easy to excise it because it doesn't seem to be bound up with his broader philosophy. It seems to be some kind of a, uh, a lapse, I would have thought. Well, listen, I mean, I, I can sincerely say it's been a, a fascinating discussion, honestly, um, but we need need to wrap it up. For those listening, I hope you've in, enjoyed the show. We've had already had lots of interesting guests in this series so far, including Owen Flanagan, Patricia Churchland, Rebecca Buxton, Lisa Bortolotti, Tom Pasulis, Peter Adamson, and there are, are more to come. So please do subscribe and do those boring things like, you know, give it a ranking, a review, share, all the usual sort of um, nonsense. I, I would encourage you both, both my guests are active in sort of more public facing philosophy. I've already uh, mentioned Claire Chambers's book, Intact, and thoroughly recommend it. Is it out in paperback yet? It's coming out in paperback in the summer. I think July, I think is the, the date. Okay, so if you, if you, if you, can't afford the hardback there's not a long time to to wait and lucy of course is highly involved with the royal institute of philosophy which does a whole load of uh, great fantastic stuff you'd have to look around in the 
journals or websites for my stuff. I have a book coming out, but it'll probably be two years on social self-consciousness. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll look we'll look forward to that. And of course, the Wall Street Philosophy lectures are all uh, videoed on YouTube as well. So you don't have to live in London to enjoy those. So um, thank you very much, um, Claire and Lucy. Thank you for listening. And uh, so until uh, next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>